Our text today is John chapter 19, verse 38, through John chapter 20, verse 18. And the title of the message, The Tomb. I'll begin in John chapter 19, verse 18. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. We should take note at some of these things. If you pay attention to the Synoptic Gospels, and I will allude to them in a little bit, you'll note that Joseph was a rich man, that this tomb had never been used, and it was carved out of a rock, a big rock. Okay, we'll continue. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. You'll see a couple of notes on the text that's up behind me. The first one is referencing the word Jesus because the Greek actually says him. The translators simply put Jesus there so that you would know who the him is they're talking about. So this is talking about the fact that Nicodemus had gone to Jesus secretly. Some called him a coward. But a coward is not someone who would go along with Joseph, who would go and seek the body of someone that was just sentenced to death. That's not a coward. So he's a brave man. And the interesting thing, that other note, uh, it basically could be literally translated 100 litras, not exactly a liter, but a Roman pound. And when the translators considered who would be reading this in English, they knew that we would understand the actual measurement, and that is about 75 pounds. Those of you who don't know what that's like, I I was tempted. I actually was tempted to bring some weights and put them up here on the stage and have somebody pick them up so you could feel what that was like. But 75 pounds is the weight of a small human adult or bigger child. That's a lot of weight. And if you can imagine putting 75 pounds, let's say, in a backpack and then climbing the stairs in your home, that's heavy. Or just walking. So, so this was important in the tradition of a burial to do this or they wouldn't have so much. The body is expected to decompose. And some of these are to help with that. And it's a ceremonial thing, the proper way to do the burial in their their culture in that time. They're going to take care of the body of Jesus. This should tell us something, though. They don't really understand all these predictions that he's been making about coming back to life, rising in three days. They're not getting it. And the reason why is God has veiled it from them. They're not supposed to get it. We're going to learn in a little bit that other people did get it. Other people you wouldn't expect to get it actually got it. But the disciples didn't. The ones closest to Jesus did not understand that he was predicting his resurrection. 
And it's because it wasn't time for them to understand. They needed to go through the grieving process and the shock of what comes after the tomb. It continues in our text. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now I want to go back to the original slide you saw that gave us our text and the title, The Tomb. But I want you to take note of this little statement I'm going to throw up here. And then the resurrection. You cannot talk about the tomb without talking about the resurrection. Some have speculated that a better thing to wear around your neck instead of a cross as a Christian, or a better thing to put on your bumper sticker, or a better thing to put on your t-shirt, or on your lapel, or your tie, or your dress, or your earrings, or your necklace, whatever, might be a tomb. Because the cross was a symbol of the death penalty that the Romans had come up with. The tomb, the empty tomb, definitely symbolizes that Jesus didn't get stuck in there. You have to talk about the resurrection when you talk about the tomb. So I could have entitled this The Tomb and the Resurrection because they do go together. I want to give you some quotes of some very noteworthy people in world history starting with Dr. Merrill C. Tenney. Oh, wait, we got things to talk about. Let's talk about this first. Death is a hard subject. Let's talk about five bullet points. It seems so final. And some of you have been through this enough times, and maybe even just one was enough. But you know what that feels like. It seems like it's, it's the end. I mean, some of you have been to open casket funerals. And that helps with closure because you see the person's body there. You go up and look at that person's body and they look alive, but they're dead. And then the casket is closed. And then a casket goes into the earth and dirt's put on top of it. And it it provides closure when that sort of thing happens. And it feels so very final. When you lose someone that you're close to, it just seems like there's a, a period at the end of their life. And that makes it hard. It is very personal because if there's someone you're close to and they pass away, it's, it's something that other people that aren't close to that person do not understand. They could read an obituary in the newspaper, which is less common now. Uh, it, it costs you. It used to be where if, if somebody died, 
You could have the obituary put in the newspaper, didn't cost you anything, and everybody learned of that person and their impact on the world, and they were reminded of this person. And even if you didn't know the person, people frequently, in fact, sometimes still, people will go to the obituaries to see if their friends are still dying. They'll go there and they'll look and they'll, be, they'll see uh, the life of someone. And it's personal. Sometimes you'll read something like, you'll see a picture of a young person and you realize this is not just a young, this is not a photo of this person when they were younger. This person died very young. And your heart sinks and you read the story and donations will be made to the leukemia, whatever, or whatever it is, you know. And then you realize, oh my goodness, something took them early. And they leave behind and you see kids and and a spouse. And your heart sinks. But you didn't know them. The people that knew them, that's who you're feeling for. The people that are left behind. Because for them, it was personal. For them, that person is not coming home every day like they once did. That person's not doing family trips. They're not sitting at the dinner table. That's a very empty feeling. Try to have dinner at the table where they always sat. The chair is still there. Some people at special times like Thanksgiving will have a plate. And they'll have the the whole settings there, the silverware and the cup. and Everything's there because that's where they sat. And they want to be thankful but that person was in their lives. It's personal. Well, what do you say about the person who's dead and you were supposed to be close to them, but you, you weren't? For whatever reason, you disconnected, you had to disconnect, you didn't communicate, and when they died, it meant really little to you. That's personal. The fact that you weren't close and you should have been still hurts. You missed something. It's personal. It's very personal. It is absolutely real. It doesn't go away. You may lie in bed at night thinking of that person that passed away and thinking, I wish I could say something I didn't say. I wish we could do that thing one more time. I missed the phone calls. Whatever it is you miss, it's real. It doesn't go away because you sleep and wake up. It can leave lingering wounds, otherwise known as causing trauma. When a person dies, even if you're not close to them, or if you are, it's a traumatic thing. It's, it's like someone has almost been erased. There's an emptiness. And some people don't know how to fill that void because the reality is when some people die, nobody can take their place. Nobody can fill their shoes. Nobody can be just like them. Nobody can do the things that they did and say things the way they said them and have the meaning that it had when they said it. And so when they're gone, if you don't fill that void with something purposeful, what ends up happening is people fill it with things they shouldn't. 
and they get themselves into trouble with addictions and depression, anxiety, and things like that. And the fifth thing I'll mention in death as a hard subject is it can be bittersweet. Some of you have lost loved ones that knew Jesus. And so when they died, you had no worry about their soul. Some of you have been at the bedside of somebody who's dying, and they are saying, I'm ready to be with Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. And all those other things still in the five bullet points, they all, all four other things still matter, but it's, it's bittersweet. Someone dies that's been suffering, you think, oh, I'm so glad they're no longer suffering. But I miss them. Somebody dies, I wish they were still here. But heaven's far better than anything on earth. So it can be bittersweet. And that makes it hard. I wanted to talk about that because the subject is the tomb. So the, the, the subject within that subject has to be death. And I wanted to give you a little bit of something different because of the nature of the darkness of the subjects at hand. I wanted to give you something a little different, and this is from an artist you might not have ever heard, um, but I, I want to give you something with a little twang and a little message.
So what I was talking about when I said it's personal, even if you don't know the person, obviously a young person passed. But I wanted you to have that in the form of some kind of therapy if you've had some recent trauma and a death. Our text, John 19, 38 through 2018, the tomb. Don't forget, and the resurrection. Now I want to give you the quotes. Dr. Merrill C. Tenney said, The resurrection of Christ marks the intersection of the temporal and eternal worlds of an immaterial existence and spiritual life because the event is supernatural. It expresses the essence of God's revelation because it's historical. It is a genuine part of human experience. The resurrection is a permanent witness to the love, power, holiness, and redemptive purpose of God, and is also a fact which must be accepted as part of history. It cannot be dismissed as a speculative venture of the intellect, which is possibly but not necessarily true. The quote continues. Next slide. For this reason, the resurrection is perpetually relevant to the intellectual and spiritual problems of the world. The event provides a foundation for faith. Its imagery contains a framework for a new life. But this one great fact, all theology can be integrated by this one great fact. Revelation, incarnation, redemption, satisfaction, eschatology reach their fullest development in the de demonstration of the divine triumph over death. Some more quotes. This one's from Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield from Princeton University and Seminary. The resurrection of Christ is a fact, an external occurrence within the cognizance of man to be established by other testimonies and yet which is the cardinal doctrine of our system. On it, all other doctrines hang. And another quote from Baron John Singleton Copley Lyndhurst. <laughs> I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. And that's a lawyer, well-respected one. Dr. William Lyon Phelps from Yale said, Our faith in God, in Christ, in life itself is based on the resurrection. For as Paul said, if Christ be not risen from the dead, then is our preaching vain, and your faith also is vain. Dr. Merrill C. Tenney also said this, the resurrection demands our attention, demands the attention of those who contemplate the basic problems of death and life, for it has thrust into them a new factor which must be included in evaluating the whole of human experience. Any attempt to explain the process of history will be incomplete without it. The resurrection is permanently relevant to any scheme of thought. Now think about that for just a minute. There's been an effort for us to change the way we do our lettering when we talk about historical dating. Have you noticed this? And that's because for so long it was always before Christ and after his death. Now they want it to do 
they want us to use different lettering so that the emphasis isn't on the fact that Jesus came and rose from the dead. All of history hinges on the resurrection. We were created with this in mind from the beginning, John says, in the gospel that we're studying, all things were made that have been made through him. And from the beginning was the very concept of Jesus. So everything was designed to lead us to Christ, who rose from the dead and made it so that all of us could not have this period at the end of our lives, that we could live on into eternity in a place of essential bliss in the presence of the Lord. So we'll pick up in John chapter 20 now that we finished John 19. Starting with verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Whoa! Those of you who know your history and your Bible history, you know that there's a lot that's happened between the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20 that John doesn't tell us about. And that's what makes the synoptics very different. So we're going to talk about the synoptics a little bit. And the synoptic accounts, here they are. I'll give them to you in the text, Matthew 27 to 28, Mark 15 to 16, and Luke 23 to 24. Those are the synoptic gospel parameters of the discussion of the tomb and the resurrection. We gain some more insight from them. One of those things we gain from them that we don't get in John is that the Romans were certain that Jesus was teaching his followers, the Jews, that he would rise in three days. And because of this, they approached the authorities and said, hey, we got to make sure they don't steal the body and claim he rose from the dead. So they sealed up the tomb and put guards around it. So they put a physical parameter on the tomb, sealing up the tomb, putting a rock in front of it, and then sealing it more than likely with something like wax or something so you could see if it was tampered with. And then on top of that, they placed guards there. And a lot of people think guards means plural, so that means two. Guards means whatever plurality that is. We don't know. We weren't told two guards. There more than likely were many more than two because there were several disciples that were very close to Jesus. If you want to really make sure they don't steal the body, you got to make sure you can't be overpowered. And they were very afraid to do anything with Jesus before. Remember, they came in a mob when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane and they were well armed. And Peter took control of the situation, so they know very easily these disciples could overpower them. So they're going to have plenty of guards around the tomb. I'll show you once again my Tough Guy Jesus artist rendition, where some, like I said, some women call this beefcake Jesus, but... At the tomb, what you see is a small tomb. There's a hole that you would have to bend down to go into. There's a reason for that. Because in all of the gospel accounts, there is indication that you had to stoop down to look in the tomb, which would mean it's, short, it's too short to walk in. It has to be shorter because everybody had to stoop down to look in it. 
which makes sense. I mean, if it's carved out of a rock, you, you wouldn't want to make it unnecessarily tall. You got to make it big enough to get the body in there, you know? And so in this artist's rendition, what we have is we have Jesus who's come out of the tomb. In the synoptic gospels, we have Jesus rising from the dead. We have an angel that sits there and causes an earthquake that's very noticeable. The stone rolls away. And the soldiers become like dead men. Now, you might wonder what that means. What does that mean? They became like dead men. That means they were out of it. They weren't moving. They were still. They couldn't see anything. They fell asleep. That's what a lot of people think. They just fell asleep. Well, that's the lie they told, remember? So they have one job. Don't let them come, the Jews come back and say that his body, that he rose from the dead. Don't let that happen. And they fell asleep. If they're going to lie and say, well, we fell asleep. Guess what? We know our history. If a Roman soldier was told to guard something and then they come back when, when everything unravels and now we got a problem on our hands, you don't say, well, we fell asleep. Because then you die. This is, these are the Romans you're talking about here. You don't get to fall asleep while you're keeping watch as a soldier. So to tell the lie, well, just tell people that you fell asleep. Who's going to believe that? They wouldn't survive to tell the story. It would be more like, what happened to those Roman soldiers? They're dead because they fell asleep. That's the way it would be told. They wouldn't get to tell the story. So what does it mean then if they didn't fall asleep? Well, maybe you've been in a nightmare. And the nightmare... if. If you're like me, I grew up, I learned how to get out of nightmares. I mean, you're in a nightmare, you don't want in it, you realize you're in it. I figured out a way to get out of the nightmare. What I do is I yell. I start physically trying to yell. I, in my head, my brain switches and I yell. And that yell sounds like a really deep Bigfoot sound, according to Stephanie, because every time I do it, it wakes her up and scares her very badly. And then I go back to sleep like a baby. But maybe you've been in a nightmare where you're so scared, you feel like something really is happening and you can't move. Maybe you've actually been in reality where you thought something really scary was about to happen and you couldn't move. You become like a dead man. Imagine the soldiers, because remember, they went back and said what they saw. He rose from the dead. The stone moved away. Wait a minute. You can't say that. Say you just fell asleep. Well, how did they see that if they fell asleep? They became like dead men. They wanted to do something but didn't know what to do. They were so afraid and they couldn't move. They were able to give testimony. So they saw Jesus rise from the dead. There's more. If you read your New Testament, you'll discover that at one particular time, 500 people at the same time saw the resurrected Jesus. That's a powerful testimony. And you know, there's been a lot of effort to try to get rid of the facts concerning God, Jesus, and the Bible. 
It would have been a pretty simple thing to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Produce the body. Show everybody. There's his dead body. And nobody could ever do that. Nobody will ever be able to do that. And if you read a little bit further in John's letters, you'll discover that we can't fall into the trap of what some of the disciples might have thought. You can't fall into the trap of thinking, because when you think about, well, Jesus ascended to heaven, how does a physical body go into a spiritual place? Well, maybe it was just his spiritual body. Maybe, that, maybe it wasn't really his physical, maybe it was just a spirit. John says in his, one of his letters that that is the spirit of the Antichrist. Anyone who denies Jesus as presenting himself in the flesh, coming or going. So, well then, how did his physical body go to a spiritual place? I don't know. I'm not God. I didn't make the universe out of nothing. I don't know how his physical body went to a spiritual place. What I do know is his physical body rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now he is enthroned at the right hand of the throne of God. This is Jesus. He physically rose from the dead. It's a powerful thing. The tomb could not hold him. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Now, if you read the Synoptic Gospels, you will get a little bit confused at the accounts that happen. And it's actually not that difficult to synergize them. But it's, un it's understandable that you might have a little bit of a confused feeling when you read all of the Gospel accounts. Because this is definitely a big moment in history. And you, you're supposed to feel a little bit of chaos and confusion because that's what the disciples were going through in this moment in time. So they went toward the tomb. We pick up with verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It comes across a little bit like bragging. John was faster than Peter. In fact, he's faster than he's saying because another one of the gospel accounts shows that John took off first and then Peter took off. And then John... I'm sorry, Peter took off first, then John took off. And John took off after Peter, then passed him, got to the tomb first, knelt down, and then John went right on into the tomb like it was nothing. It continues, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. <laughs> he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying within the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. This was a methodical, calculated resurrection. Continues. 
Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. That's important to take note of that. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, if if they didn't believe he rose from the dead, then what did they believe? Well, they believed what Mary said. They took his body. He's gone. What did they do with his body? But they stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She was with them. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why? Well, some speculate that, you know, Jesus probably had a veiled sort of piece of clothing on, as had a, like an old-fashioned first-century hoodie, <laughs> and couldn't really see his face. But it might more, might more reasonably be what P.T. Butler speculates, and that she's been crying so much that her eyes are welled with tears. And she's only seeing a little bit of a blur as she looks up at him. And she's confused. But Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, can also be translated Hebrew or Aramaic. It's difficult to understand which one it is. They're very similar languages. But understand this. When he said her name, she knew who he was, and instantly she refers to him as Rabboni. That is a a term only reserved at this point in time when you include Jesus to seven people that have been called this, an esteemed teacher. She knew who he was. Why did she think he was a gardener at first? Because who else would be there that early in the morning in the garden except the gardener? It seems reasonable that this could be the gardener, but she now knows who he is. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. In other words, she's saying to them, he has come back to life. I saw him. We learn in the other accounts, they didn't believe her. Well, it's in time for them to understand just yet. It is interesting when you look at this, though, he refers to his disciples many times as other things, like his disciples, 
his followers, children, branches. And this time he shifts and now calls them brothers. The resurrection has changed everything. And as the quotes we referenced earlier would indicate, it changed history. That is the end of our text. So now we're at the application part that I've entitled, Now What? Three things. Death may seem final, but the soul lives on. It seems like a period at the end of somebody's life, especially if it's an open casket. But the soul lives on. And that's important to note. Second, we get to choose the destiny of our souls by deciding to live for Jesus or not. If you have decided to live for Jesus and followed through living for Jesus, then the destiny of your soul is heaven. You have nothing to worry about when it comes to the destiny of your soul because you're living for him. He knows this. You know this. But if you're not living for him, you have every reason to be troubled about the destiny of your soul. If you are not totally sold out to Jesus and he knows that you are, if, you're, if, if you've not gotten to a point where he knows you're living for him, your soul is headed to hell. A place described as eternal fire, tormenting of the souls who chose not to live for Jesus. It's not trendy to hear this in a church from a preacher much anymore. No, it's in modern times, it's relegated to Bible studies and Sunday school classes where in private we talk about hell. Hell is real, heaven is real, and you don't want to wait until the period at the end of your life to learn that. We're told that every knee will bow and bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You should do that now and live for him so you can know that you've made the right choice. The third thing is this. You can have a lingering positive impact on those who know you even after you're gone. We have a tradition that we like to do, Stephanie and I. Stephanie started it. But we like to go uh, on particular holidays when we're emphasizing those who have sacrificed their all and fighting for the freedoms this great country has. Still, we still have a few. So we, we go for, on, those, on that day. We also go on other days where we celebrate those who have served but have gone on to eternity. And we go other times. But it's very special, you know, when you see all the American flags peppered, uh, the cemetery that we go to frequently, uh, they have them like every 20 feet or something. I don't even know how many they've got, probably hundreds of full-size American flags on poles. As I understand it, it takes all day to put them up and all day to put them away. 
And then they've got flags in all, at all the headstones of everyone who has served in the United States Armed Forces. We go to particular people's headstones of people that have passed on to eternity where their remains are in the ground. And they have a marker on the ground and it has their name. And we, we go and we clean them off a little bit. It is sad that we're not family, but we're doing that. It's even more sad when you look around at all the other headstones of those that have been forgotten, where the grass is encroaching up on things, and clearly the cemetery is trying to take care of it, but there's no family, there's no friends, there's no co-workers, there's no neighbors that are going by to take care of that headstone that represents the remains, that, that this all represents a life of someone who walked this planet at some point in time. Nobody wants to be that person that is buried and forgotten. That person's no longer with us. Who is that? Did anybody know him? We all want to make our mark on this planet. We want to, when we go on into eternity, we want people to remember us for something good, some, something positive we did here in our lives on this earth. And you can't do any better than knowing Jesus, living for Jesus, and sharing him with others, that will be remembered. Because you're perpetuating, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others, and they won't forget who shared Jesus with them. You've, you've set a standard, and they've followed it, and they're going to do the same thing because you taught them how to lead others to Christ. You led them. So people of God, I highly recommend you make that choice, not just to live for him, but to teach others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us something beyond the period at the end of our lives here on this earth. We thank you for creating a way to pull us back to you. We thank you for reaching out in so many different ways and reminding us of your love for us. God, help us as we try to reach back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.